Just Thrive Probiotic is the first and only 100% all-natural spore-form DNA verified and tested probiotic supplement. What is spore-form DNA? Well, spores are created by various bacteria to protect themselves against harsh environments. So the fact that Just Thrive uh, uses spore-form DNA and spore-form bacteria means that these bacteria are going to survive the stomach acid and go to your colon and your lower digestive system, where is where they're supposed to go, and help you out and increase their effectiveness. So I think it's a fantastic thing that they have spore-form bacteria as part of their probiotic. It's the subject of uh, groundbreaking clinical studies, and Just Thrive has demonstrated incomparable effects on the gut and undeniable connection to the immune system and brain. So Just Thrive, out of the goodness of their hearts, uh, they're offering my listeners 15% off site-wide. So if you go to justthrivehealth.com today, put in the code GENIUS15 to get advantage of uh, incredible savings and learn more. And I just got some in the mail as a thank you from Just Thrive, and I'm, I took my first two tonight, and I'm looking forward to seeing the effects. So again, go to justthrivehealth.com today. Forget frequently asked questions. Common sense. Common knowledge. Or Google. How about advice from a real genius? 95% of people in any profession are good enough to be qualified and licensed. 5% go above and beyond. They become very good at what they do. But only 0.1% are real geniuses. Richard Jacobs has made it his life's mission to find them for you. He hunts down and interviews geniuses in every field. Sleep science, cancer, stem cells, ketogenic diets, and more. Here come the geniuses. This is the Finding Genius Podcast with Richard Jacobs. Hello, this is Richard Jacobs with the Finding Genius Podcast. I have uh, Rachel Fulton Brown. She's an associate professor of history, part of the Department of History at University of Chicago. And we're going to talk about some of her uh, research surrounding Christianity. So, Rachel, thank you for coming. Thank you for having me, Richard. If you would tell me a bit about your background, how did you? Uh, turn towards these studies and, you know, what's a bit about your background? Well, the executive summary is I was an undergraduate at Rice University in Houston. I was a graduate student at Cambridge University in England and at Columbia University in New York. And I've been teaching at the University of Chicago since 1994. I grew up Presbyterian. Uh, I spent many decades worshiping in the Anglican Church, Episcopalian Church here in the United States. Um, and I was received into the Catholic Church uh, in 2017, four years ago. My research covers the history of Christianity, and my teaching is you know, wide-ranging around questions of civilization and creativity um, and with a special emphasis on Tolkien. Well, quick question. So what is your uh, research around Tolkien about, just the, the man himself or the stories, or what, what's the focus of it? So that, I, I, I do a course that I've taught on campus since 2005, every several years on um, Tolkien, medieval and modern. And uh, the idea is to understand the way in which Tolkien as a Catholic drew on medieval understandings of creativity and imagination to, I think, inf- try to touch the modern world with some of those, those same insights. And um, I've been making a video series for the last year um, that's published on unauthorized TV. You have to subscribe to that. It's a subscription channel, um, but it's called The Forge of Tolkien. And I talk through his stories and the way in which he understood um, the problem of creation. Yeah, that's really interesting. Um, I've read Tolkien and I read the Silmarillion, I guess, where he goes into the creation of the world and you know, it's his version of it. So- 
but I guess a more general question: What in the medieval times? What was the state of Christianity and Catholicism? What was it like back then versus modern times? What did they believe that was different? So I've been reading a lot of Marshall McLuhan recently, and um, if you know his work, he's writing in the 1960s and sort of meditating on the difference uh, differences that different media have on you know our our experience of the world um, because he thought about the media that we use like language but also literacy writing by hand versus printing and now as we're doing this kind of work you know in the electric age right we're in this digital connection and his insight and he was a catholic as well so a, a convert like i am that he understood that the way in which we experience the world is is directly affected by these these media that we're participating in and in my study of medieval christianity i've been very interested in the practices of devotion and liturgy and you know for example developing pr- prayer practices modeled on the the monastic offices the divine offices but specifically focused on praying to mary right and over the course of the high middle ages the uh, monks and then lay people adopt from the monks on um, practices of saying the psalms on a sort of hourly schedule right there's a there's a particular schedule for the divine office and those are copied into manuscript books, but then transformed into print in, in the first you know, several decades of the, the printing press. And reading McLuhan is making me think a lot about the differences between the kinds of books that are produced in the Middle Ages for prayer versus the expectations that we have of devotion and prayer after the development of the printing press. And the primary difference, to get to your particular question, the primary difference between medieval Christianity and modern Christianity is that medieval Christianity you can see is very local and very grassroots. And and this is something I didn't properly understand until I was reading McLuhan, that the medieval prayer prayer practices, that they're individualized by region, but also by town. Um, The manuscript books will be very, very personalized, right? You might have your own set of prayers that you say, you might write into them, you might have particular pictures. Once the printing press comes in, not just the Protestants in the 16th century, but also the Catholics start making you know, mechanically reproduced books, and you end up with a a culture in which you expect prayer to be regular and, you know, formal in in a a, a sort of mechanic, that mechanically reproduced way. So I think what most modern Catholics and Protestants think of as, you know, the, the religion that we practice through specific text has been completely transformed by the, 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 uh, the fact that, you know, if you're if you're saying the prayers in the in the Middle Ages, they're very personalized and very intimate. And if you're saying them after the printing press, it's this abstracted thing that's coming to you in this mechanically reproduced way. Now, what's interesting is, of course, we're not living in that exclusively print world. Now we're living in this digital world, and I've also therefore yeah. been thinking a lot about the way in which, you know, every the, all of our religious experiences are being affected by our ability to communicate as you and I are right now, electrically, right? And that electrical um, uh, experience is much more tactile, right? The, the technical term is haptic, right? You have the, the touch of um, the, the it's, it's interesting, it's like this numerical touch. I think one of the things that we're, we're experiencing right now in our culture at large is this, this feeling of being connected again um, in, in ways that back in the villages, you know, people were connected. Um, but at this, this kind of hyper intense, uh, all of our senses are, 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 are being 
overly stimulated by the electrical waves that we're engaged in and how that's going to change our prayer practices. I'm, I'm very interested to think about, but I think one of the things it's doing is creating little villages of communication, um, somewhat like the, the sort of grassroots developments of the middle ages. So we'll see, right. It's like, I, I, we're in a new moment yet again in the way in which we engage with each other and therefore the way in which we think about liturgy and prayer. Okay. So has anyone gathered up a big swath of like the medieval prayers to compare them? Like, like what did people do? They went to church and then because things really weren't written, they just kind of made their own prayers based on what they heard and they wrote it down for themselves or how did it work? Uh, well, I wrote a book about it. <laughs> um, oh, that's very it, cool. I, the book is called Mary and the Art of Prayer. And in the first chapter, I take you through very in very specific detail exactly what prayers they're developing. No, they're not just making up their own. They're drawing from a repertoire of prayers. Um, what they're doing is is assembling them in, in ways that are, you know, specific to the communities that they're they're saying them in. So, for example, in the monastic world, there you may be familiar. I don't know whether your audience would be familiar, but there, there are a number of different religious orders that develop over the Middle Ages. So there are Benedictines, there's Cistercians, Dominicans, Franciscans, Carmelites, Carthusians, Premonstratensians, Augustinian friars, and each of those communities ended up with a different version um, of the texts. Different uh, parishes and dioceses would also have different. So there's a communal element to the variations. It's it's not completely like you just make up your own stuff, but it's it's more like um, you know the, what people do on social media now. If you're kind of assembling things that you see out there in the world, lots of pictures, lots of texts, and putting them together in your own sort of scrapbook version, I, I think that's a little. Well, they didn't, yeah, they didn't have, but like, there's prayer memes or anything. Oh, they definitely had prayer memes. That's the oh, really? point, huh. right? Prayer memes are, um, for example, the the spread of the devotional iconography, right from from the, the 11th or 12th century, you get many more pictures, pictures and sculptures of Christ on the cross, right? And over the course of the, the period, they get more and more gory because the meditation is on the suffering that he went through for our sake, for our salvation, which I can talk about. But when you think about the replication of all of those images, one, to, to get to get to have your own cross, crucifix in your church or your statue of Mary or your altarpiece showing the Annunciation. You had to commission an artist to make one. To give your body the important immune support it needs so you can feel your absolute best, get your gut in order with Just Thrive Probiotic. Uh, very nice of them. They're offering 15% off for listeners all across their website. So go to justthrivehealth.com and put in the code GENIUS15. You can take advantage of incredible savings and learn more about their products. We do see that they are making them on patterns, right? It's like, you know, you, you'd have your own version of Mary as the throne of wisdom. And we've got lots of those in wood, right? And pretty much every altar would probably have one. But yours would be this yours, right? This one you have specific to your own church. Before you can make photographs of everything and see everybody's, right? I think you get much more of a sense of, you know, our Mary is is that image that we have in the church, which is not idolatry. Because you're not expecting that Mary statue to do the um, prayers for you. But you are intimate and local in a way that is harder once we're in the, the printed context. But now, I think with social media, everybody's responding as if everything that touches them is very, very personal. And I think that way, in that, we're, we're sort of closer to the medieval. 
Well, all right. So did certain uh, prayers win out? I would think, you know, I guess political forces would cause certain prayers to become the standard as printing came, you know, came about and other ones to fall away. Were you able to find ones that were lost over time or did, were you able to trace the evolution of which ones became the mainstream? Well, you know, the one that became the mainstream, if you're not Catholic, Hail Mary, full of grace, the Lord is with you. Blessed art thou among women and blessed is the fruit of thy womb, Jesus. I mean, one of the things that happens is you get abbreviated versions of things that everybody picks up. So the rosary develops in the period. With printing, it's easier to promote these particular devotions, but the the sense of a political political winning out, well, yes, I mean, the Council of Trent, following the Council of Trent, the Catholic Church licenses um, certain certain books and versions to be printed. And you could, I mean, I guess you could say that's, that's a political response, but the, you know, the real political response is things like England's Book of Common Prayer, because that is mandated by the government, right? So you need to, to um, think about who's doing the standardizing, who's doing the issuing and licensing, that we lost certain practices, we lost certain prayers. I mean, with the, the hours of the Virgin in the, in the later Middle Ages, there's as many as different as, well, we have records of as many as 600 different variants in the assemblage of text, right? So imagine that, you know, every single account on social media put together their favorite versions of the, the selection. There are some, there are some stable elements like the Psalms that are for Matins are very specific, but you put them all together. Um, and in the, in the 16th century with the printing press, one version gets picked out and says, this is, you know, this is the one we're going to license and print. And it's called the use of Rome, but it was originally um, the Franciscans variant. So, I mean, it's, it's a fascinating problem because to say, what was it? What, you know, you think of the medieval church is all rigid and, and, you know, determined. And in fact, it's the, the printed versions. It's the early modern printing that creates the, the rigidity. What about uh, scripture? Was that on a separate tract a separate path was this considered as as vital as scripture was it literally canonized or was it is this a more of a loose process you know with the prayers the scripture is affected the same way as everything else right and that's so i started down this particular rabbit hole path um a few weeks ago because i'm thinking about a paper that i was asked to write on the gospels spoken and written and you know what what you realize for the medieval the medieval period for the pre-printing period we'll say Thinking about how people knew the Gospels is very dynamic, right? They they know them from liturgies that they attend. They know them from the art that's in the churches. They know them from sermons that they heard on the feast days. There's a, a range of ways in which people encounter the stories. So certainly people in the Middle Ages knew the Gospels. But with the printing press and, you know, with people like Luther making the argument that you should read, you know, sola scriptura is sufficient, although I'm not actually sure that Luther made that argument in those terms, but it's an artifact. It's literally an artifact of being able to produce these rep- these machine made books. And then instead of the gospel being something that you encounter because you're thinking about the story of the passion on Good Friday, um, it becomes this thing you read in a book and sort of abstracted out of your experience. It makes it it's it's a curious thing because it makes it much more distant and what, fixed what, what, than it was what it, experienced in the in the pre-printing period yeah what would it be like to uh be told you know a story of the gospel by your mother or someone in your community or your you know your local uh preacher versus reading it out of the book what, how do you think the experience would be different well you mentioned your mother reading to you right one of the ways that we know um people learned to read in the middle ages was you know the mother's 
reading with them, the images of um, the Virgin Mary's mother Anne reading to her, right? But the way they learned to read was from these these books of ours that I'm talking about, these prayer books or Psalters, right? So what's interesting about learning to read at the time, it, it I mean, it had different functions, right? You could learn to read in the towns because you're in the merchant class and they are make, you know setting up schools so the children were literate and numerate and so forth. Um, but the, the texts that you would learn to read from would be, first of all, the Psalms, right? So the very first thing you'd be working with learning to read, even as a child, would be prayers, right? So I think your experience of what reading means is very different. Um, you know, it's like you're not reading because you're reading for a private experience like a novel, right? You're reading because this gives you the the ability to voice the, I want to say text because that makes us think about those books, right? But you're reading to be able to voice the prayers that people are, everybody's saying, right? It's a communal thing. And stories you're going to encounter as much, you know, told, you know, recited by storytellers as you are privately reading them in a book. And even ones that are written in a book, they're, they'll, they'll say things like, um, you know, Lords, listen to this wonderful story. And we assume that that means they're being performed in some way. They're, they're scripts. They're more like plays. And, and that's another way that medieval, I mean, particularly in the later Middle Ages, medieval Christians would know the Gospels. They know the whole Bible stories because they'd seen them in plays, these these cycles of plays that are performed in the towns. What was the fidelity of the stories? How reliable were they? I guess because they came out of oral tradition until they were written down. And then when the printing press came in, now they could be widely disseminated and enforced. But what was it like? What was scripture like, I guess, originally? I guess it was oral tradition. Like what what would have been the experience of someone learning it? You're showing your prejudice, your literate pre- prejudice. Oh, it's unreliable and, and malleable, right? Um, in fact, it was actually I mean, very stable think? as texts. No, it was, I, I do, it was very stable as text. Um, however, I mean, stories grow in the telling. And that's, that's you know, if you think about a play, right? For example, Jesus Christ Superstar. How reliable is that, right? That's a story told on the, you know, it's a play, right? Movie, a mu- musical, told on the basis of the Gospels or any movie now that purports to show you the actual experience of Jesus at the crucifixion. That sort of desire to be in the story, the desire to see, you know, the actual events, that is also something that we see in the Middle Ages, that there a meditation, there's a famous collection of uh, meditations called the Meditations on the Life of Christ. And the idea is, you know, imagine yourself in the scene, you know, there in the, in the scenes and, you know, the gospels are, are fairly spare in some of their details. And so, you know, for example, with the crucifixion. And so one of the meditations in the, the meditations on the life of Christ is how many nails did they use? Right. It's, it's not said. And so it could be three, could it be two, you know, if you're, if you're trying to represent these things in your mind, imaginatively and visually, you need to know certain details. And what's interesting about those kinds of details is they um, develop them by reading the Old Testament and things like the Psalms, which describe the suffering of, of the uh, Savior. So, you know, when you're asking how accurate it is, then we have to talk about what accuracy means, because we have this particularly 19th century idea that, oh, you know, the historical Jesus and we really know who he was. That's just as much fantasy as any medieval meditation on the the reality of the crucifixion it's it's we're filling in things based on our judgments about what reality is what kind of picture do you get having looked at all you looked at having seen all these old prayers and all these different 
you know, oral tradition stories that have come and then eventually coalesced into different versions of, you know, of scripture. Like what, what is the picture to you look like? What do you think it actually was like back in uh, Jesus's day? Did you have any new insights from all your study? In Jesus's day or in the middle ages? Well, middle ages first. And then I don't know if you extrapolate back from there or if you just stick to the middle ages, but yeah, let, let's, you know, if you can't answer both, but start with middle ages and then, you know, let's go backwards if you can. What I've learned in, in thinking through this McLuhan lens for the past few weeks, which is new to me, but I, I was also reading it because one of my teachers in, in college was um, a great New Testament scholar, Werner Kelber, and he got us started in um, thinking about these problems in the course I took on Jesus and history with him. This was at Rice in, in Houston. That we don't, I mean, it's hard for us sort of habituated to asking questions through our textual world to get back to what it was like without that as the the thing that we use to define rational or thing that we use to define, you know, provable. Um, One of the things Professor Kelber taught, his own writing about the Gospel of Mark, for example, which we studied, I studied with him in in this class 35 years ago, was how he could see the gospel, the the evangelists, right? The evangelists themselves are taking the stories that were in circulation in, in the first century and putting them together in narratives that themselves have, you know, very specific arguments. And this is a, it's a standard thing in New Testament scholarship that each of the four gospels has a, a different audience that they're assuming, and therefore different kinds of questions that they're asking and answering for their own communities. And, uh, you know, so the, the exercise of saying, you know, what was the historical Jesus like? Well, it's fraught from the beginning because the texts themselves are, theological to begin with right they're not they're not trying to give us this transparent historical variant but if you're a christian you know that right because you understand that everything that we see is 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 only understood properly through christ right through looking at it so even you know question do we know what it was really like in you know in the roman period well you are assuming that the gospels aren't real in in this kind of secularizing. I, another book I'm reading right now is Henry Sienkiewicz's Quo Vadis, which is set in Nero's reign. Um, and it's, it's an interesting meditation because it's trying to imagine what it would have been like in Rome in, you know, Peter, when Peter and Paul are still alive, right, before they're, before they're martyred. And, you know, what it was like for the, the, the early Christian, the very earliest Christians to know, you know, who Jesus, who Jesus was and what it meant to be Christian. What I say when I when I talk about this in my classes is the reason we care so much in our tradition is precisely because we're, we you know worship a Lord who became incarnate in history. And so we really, really care that this is a real historical event and that, you know, his, his entry into time and his effect on us as human beings is because he became truly actually incarnate in in time. And that is what the gospels say. But then to understand what that means, you have to like really believe that the creator of the world entered into his creature do i i I think that christians in the middle ages had a stronger grasp of that for sure what do you think has been lost by this um i guess assimilation of all these like different stories and traditions into you know literally i guess canon you know the printing press has said now because we can print this uh you know some force is going to dominate what it looks like and it's going to be standardized so Again, what do you think has been lost today that we would have enjoyed back in the middle of medieval age? Joy. 
I think the joy has been lost. And one of the things that I, you know, I, I try to do in my teaching and my scholarship, um, and, and we're working on this in a class right now that I'm doing on writing Christian poetry. Yesterday, we were talking about the fall, right? And we were reading Milton and Paradise Lost and, and talking about what, you know, what happens with Satan. And Milton famously makes Satan allegedly appealing. But the fall, the fall that we've lived through in modernity is this fracture of our ability to see the spiritual and material worlds as interconnected and, and filled with the light of God. You know, it's like what, what we see in the Middle Ages is people building those great cathedrals, right, which are containers for light. That's the whole point of those giant windows that they develop in the, the Gothic architecture that you have, and, and not just light, but colored light, right? So you have this amazing um, experience of being inside this giant gemstone if you're in one of those cathedrals, which is then filled with music because of the choirs. Um, they're singing the Psalms, which is meant to replicate the way in which the angels sing um, praises to God in heaven, and that that correspondence between heaven and earth is, you know, embodied in b- both their their devotion and their intellectual work, you know, through the through the 13th and 14th centuries. And you know, the, for me, the, the thing that we lose with that printed ver- variant is the lived worship of um, the liturgy. Now, you know, to say, well, of course, people still people still go to church and people still sing and so forth now, but the more you are convinced that your spiritual life is something private and interior and, and you know, like the romantic artistic subjectivity versus, uh, you know, our enlightenment conviction that with science, we can see reality because we know how to measure it and talk about the material world and its functions that, that the enlightenment is the big psyop of modernity, right? Claiming that it's, it's, it's enlightened and the, and the previous, periods were dark no we have been darkened and blinded by this image that just came to me is when you think about the, like the brain and and you have they they do those surgeries on epileptics by cutting the corpus callosum so that you're you know one the two sides of your brain can't talk to each other anymore we're, our culture is kind of like that we've we've had the surgery of the enlightenment to cut our affect from our intellect and we can't see anything clearly anymore i don't know can you say a little bit more about that like what what do you think is now uh, hidden from our view? Like what? So in the medieval times, I guess I would guess a lot of people's perception is like they were brutes back then. You know, they didn't care about life and they just clubbed each other to death and took each other's money. And now we're enlightened and we're sensitive and we're culturally aware. And blah blah blah. Is that accurate? Or in medieval times were they just the same as we are? Well, this is where the McLuhan sort of meditation on the media is important. They didn't have the mechanical reproducibility stuff, so they weren't mechanized in the way that we are. And, uh, you know, therefore they, I mean, it's easy to get it. One, I don't want to get sort of nostalgically woo-woo. Everything was, you know, of sweetness and light in the period. We, we live in a fallen world and we have since Eden, right? Which going back to Milton, thinking about Paradise Lost, right? But, you know, the fall comes um, when you know Satan, Satan enters into the garden and hates it. Right? He hates all of creation. He hates the animals. He hates the plants. He hates the you know. He particularly hates the human beings, but he even hates the dirt. He hates everything material and comes in and persuades Adam and Eve, particularly Eve, to start with that you know they they he persuades her that she you know deserves to be worshipped as a goddess or deserves to be seen. Right? He says like the sight is very interesting. you you deserve to be seen by more than just Adam here that you know one of the things in the middle ages people were very conscious of is sin 
and the you know the need to train in virtue to do penance to uh, you know appreciate the ways we're caught up in our vices um our appetites and you know our passions and and so forth that i think what modernity has is we don't believe in sin for the most part you know we 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 have some crude versions of oh if we can fix society everybody will behave well but that's like you know, we want to make a better machine so all the, the animals in it aren't, you know, behaving disgustingly. That's Luciferian, right? That's Satan saying, I hate humanity. And if you if you really want if you really want to feel this, what I feel right now in our world right now is we despise the human. And and if you look at the way in which the you know people are being forced into participating in the digital world, you know, by way of surveillance and you know tracking and things like that, that that that's satanic in its despite of the dirt we're dirt what's interesting for the middle ages they're dirt they know it and yet they also understand the joy of being made in the image and likeness of god and invited by god to create so you you know our if you want to say our modern cathedrals are giant skyscrapers with glass on the outside that reflects you know, the sky and the people inside live in little boxes, concrete boxes. The Middle Ages, you make cathedrals with the light streaming in, and that's where the people go to worship. I see what you mean. So nowadays, anyone that goes to a church, they're not going to be working on anything inside the building. I mean, at best, they may be doing like decorating for the holiday, you know, for Christmas, but they're not constructing anything. They're not making statues. They're not making buildings. They're not, I guess, doing devotional works of art. Is what you mean? Like people are just going with this pre-made, prefabricated, mass-produced religion that they're they they participate in. Is that what you mean? No, sorry. I actually meant skyscrapers are our present-day analogs to the cathedrals, right? It's like the, the skyscrapers had spires that reach to the sky, right? And you I know, mean, I live in Chicago, so we got a lot of tall buildings here. We don't spend as much energy building churches, and a lot of the churches we build now are ugly um, or look like you know, stadia, if they're really big or something like that. No, what I meant was we don't actually build Gothic cathedrals now, obviously. But not only that. But, but, but we don't even, lot, we don't even know how to worship for the most part as a culture, which is, is not saying that nobody now worships. It's saying you're asking me what's the difference between now and, and, and the Middle Ages. In the Middle Ages, the, the, the biggest building in the, in the town would be the cathedral, even, you know, taller than the castles, which the secular authorities are exerting power from now the tallest buildings that we have are our business offices right, but what do you mean that people don't know how to worship today what's missing all we look at is ourselves you know we fall into the the you know the temptation that satan and poem gives eve it's like you should be seen right you should be seen by um the world we we, we worship celebrity um we worship you know it's on our social media <laughs> We worship people who can become incredibly wealthy, and um, therefore we're basically worshiping, you know, ourselves as, uh, well, I, I, it's the image of satanic always, but it's this technological prowess that we think gives us power over each mm-hmm. other and the world. And and I'd say that's, we, we you know, our, the energy that we, we put into those kinds of connections and making that's that's what we worship we're idolaters for the most part so i guess it's interesting so we worship humanity's achievements instead of you know instead of god and at the same time we also seem to have this building self-hatred 
of ourselves. So it's a weird dichotomy, I guess. That's well described. It. That's exactly it. Oh, what's yes, that? We hate ourselves. Anything, be, satanic. Because I, mean, I told oh. you. I mean, it's like it's good that I was reading Milton yesterday, right? That Milton he describes how Satan despises everything, right? It's like he's fallen because he fell. He fell out of the refusal to worship, right? Satan falls from heaven because heaven is hierarchical for a you know good reason, right? It's like the the angels in heaven worship the creator and going back to Tolkien and his his themes right he he uses this in his Silmarillion in the Aina Lindale right the Ainur who sing the to sing in you know the theme of creation that Luvatar proposes are in proper relationship with him as as creator whereas Morgoth who wants you know think he thinks that Luvatar doesn't give sufficient attention to the void and goes off into the void and wants to make his own stuff right Lucifer falls because he he doesn't want to accept you know the freedom that comes from his obedience to the praise of god that's where and but the thing is that he ends up hating himself too right it's like if if you fall from worship of god interestingly what you end up with is no power and and simply self-loathing and you think i guess en masse that's where humanity is at right now mm-hmm. the self-loathing spot yeah i mean we're we're to the point where we don't even want to breathe which is very, very interesting, right? It's like, you know, we, 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 to the degree that we're masked, we're not breathing. I think I have a, I have a medium meditation on this that, you know, electronic voices, you're my voice. I can't hear you breathe. Oh, I can hear you breathing, but you, I, I'm nowhere physically in contact with your actual physical breathing, right? All of this, these, yeah. these voices that we hear electronically have no breath, right? So I think it's very, very interesting that we're in a moment where not being able to breathe is the primary experience. That's uh, very, uh, very sad state of affairs. For your students, what do you have recommendations for them? I mean, you teach, you show them what you've discovered, but in general, for friends, family, people you care about, listeners, like what, what are some recommendations that you'd make based on what you've seen and know if people are interested in deepening their faith and just having more of a, a joy in the world and coming out of this, like, you know, again, this dichotomy of self hatred and absolute belief and scientific progress only say the psalms and it's like you know a lot of people say say the rosary what's interesting about the rosary is it was it was originally called a psalter there were 150 aves because there were 150 aves because it was meant to substitute for the psalter in fact right but if you if you say the psalms i mean that was one of the one of the classes I've taught was on the, the sort of the Psalms in medieval culture. But what you understand is this prayer life it develops because the monks in the monasteries are saying the Psalms all the time. And that you are becoming one with the church in your voice, right? And I do think I I, I do think it helps you say them out loud because you're breathing them, right? So I said this argument about you must breathe out loud, we must use our voices that we make with our lungs. Um, and our tongues and our lips and our, you know, our, our facial muscles, we have to embody the word. So my first, my you know, primary recommendation is get, get, get the Psalms and start saying the Psalms, the, the one that everybody, if you, if you learned one Psalm in the middle ages, it would be the Miserere Mei, which you may be familiar with in Allegri's um, magnificent setting for it, but Psalm 50 in the Vulgate, Psalm 51 in the King James version. Uh, Tolkien had he recommended to his his sons that they say the praises right and that those are the texts that you get out of 
saying lauds, right? So um, particularly Psalm 148, which is all the creatures praising the Lord. Um, and also the Benedicite, which is, again, all the creatures praising the Lord. Those will give you joy. Those will connect you back with Greek creation. If you start saying those, those prayers out loud with your breath. Now, I have some other okay. suggestions too, but start there. Well, sure. What are your other suggestions? So with my students right now, the reason we were reading Milton is I'm teaching a course on writing Christian poetry. And I've been working with a, a group that I put together online in my my telegram chat we called the dragon common room and we've been writing um poems in the you know in the old style right in iambic pentameter modeled on the great christian writers like alexander pope and uh we're working on one now with this to be modeled on edmund spencer um fairy queen that you are disciplining yourself to the beauty of you know both our language I mean, it's like writing a meter and rhyme you have to attend to the sounds of the words it's not just you know the sense right that there's a there's an oral element to you know the older styles of poetry um, but also thinking thinking of our engagement with the world through our imaginations right one of the books we're reading uh, for the writing christian poetry is malcolm geat's study on faith theology and hope I think that's not the right title. It's his birthday today. So this is think that we, we have in the modern world, we have this idea that the only reason is, you know, the way that we access understanding and you say, no, the imagination was always meant to be part of it. And if our, if we're fallen, our reason is just as fallen as our imagination. So don't, don't worry about that. The enlightenment is another psyop because I think reason is the, the, the great tool that we have. We should have both our imagination and our reason and poetry is you know an effort to sort of make beauty in understanding and and, and therefore is a is a marvelous vehicle is not quite the word but embodiment of our understanding of the incarnation so you can follow my you can follow my my work our poets are the poets are publishing a new poem called aurora Borealis, which is children's book which you have pictures for it's also illustrated and we're that's going to be out in in the next few weeks from our dragon common rooms books you can make art right and and do it with but but not just make anything like oh you know you're going to express your interior right you are making art that's creating with the world and to find a way that in the older tradition the both the 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 human being and the, the the world itself are part of the great symphony i suppose of god speaking well very good rachel it's been a really good call what's the best way for listeners to find out more about your work where can they go? Like, where can they get your books and find out more about you? Um, so I have a, a homepage. It's through my, uh, hosted at the University of Chicago on, the, on our homepage sites, but you can find it just by Googling Rachel Fulton Brown. Um, if you find the Wikipedia page, you might be a little alarmed, but it's got links to my homepage. I have a, a blog called Fencing Bear at Prayer, where I post about my work. Um, and um, be looking for dragoncommonroom.com, where we'll have information about our poems we're working on that website right now that'll be up in in a, in a few weeks in a week or so probably okay well very good thank you very much for coming on the podcast i appreciate it well thank you for the conversation i enjoyed it remember before you go the easiest thing you can do to support your immune system and your gut health is to check out just thrive probiotic go to their website justthrivehealth.com, and use the promo code genius 15 at checkout you get 15 percent off thank you just thrive You've been listening to the Finding Genius Podcast with Richard Jacobs. 
If you like what you hear, be sure to review and subscribe to the Finding Genius Podcast on iTunes or wherever you listen to podcasts. And want to be smarter than everybody else? Become a premium member at FindingGeniusPodcast.com. This podcast is for information only. No advice of any kind is being given. Any action you take or don't take as a result of listening is your sole responsibility. Consult professionals when advice is needed.